Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Uh, I'm actually very pleased today to have a friend a mentor and the current president of the American Society of Colorectal Surgeons join us here today, Dr. Guy Arangio. Guy, welcome to Behind the Knife. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So Guy, uh, for our listeners, you're an associate professor of clinical surgery, the chief of the section of colorectal surgery uh, down in LSU um, uh, in uh, New Orleans. But can you tell the listeners a little bit about where'd you grow up and where'd you train to the point where you came to LSU? I am. I grew up in in uh, Union City, New Jersey, uh, second-generation Italian. Went to high school in Union City, went to college in New Jersey, uh, Fairleigh Dixon, New Jersey. Then went to Columbia for a couple of years for on a, a, a pathway for a PhD, but uh, found out that it wasn't for me, so actually I quit. And then I worked for a couple of years, some kind of odd jobs and, and playing some music in New York and Jersey and Pennsylvania. And then uh, graduated from New York Medical College, and then trained at Long Island Jewish Hillside Medical Center, my general surgery. And then in 84, went to, had the privilege of actually going to the Cleveland Clinic and working with Vic Fazio, David Jagelman, Ian Lavery, and Frank Weekly to do my fellowship. And then from there, I went to Atlanta in a private practice uh, under a uh, called Atlanta Colon and Rectal Surgeons. I left that practice two years after I uh, arrived and started my own practice and actually stayed in that practice for 27 years. Started out with myself. Uh, at that time, I was had an office in uh, Decatur, Georgia, and started covering actually four hospitals. Then brought on uh, several associates over that time frame, actually practice grew to nine colon rectal surgeons, seven offices, covered 12 hospitals. In, two, in the year 2000, we developed a ACGME uh, fellowship in colorectal surgeries, colorectal surgery. We started out with one for three years, and then we went to two fellows a year. We actually funded it ourselves. And then about, I guess in... 2011, um, uh, I started to look at at a, actually at that time I was dating um, my current wife, Lisa Peacock, and she was being, she is a female pelvic floor uh, and reconstructive surgery, um, better known as a urogynecologist, and she was being recruited for many years by LSU in New Orleans, and uh, she was finally able to sort of start to move around. She was actually in practice for 20 years at one of the hospitals that I practiced at, Northside Hospital, um, and actually we never really met each other. We knew each of each other, but we never really met each other until uh, we started dating. Anyway, um, when she went to interview, she said that she had someone else in her life, and that was me, and they asked what, what I did, and I received a call from Bob Batson, who was chair of surgery, Department of Surgery in, uh, at LSU, uh, and he asked me to come down. We both received an offer to 
migrate to an uh, academic environment, and that's why I've been since 2012. Since that time, this year we were approved for a fellowship in colorectal surgery at LSU in New Orleans. So, Guy, one of the things uh, we're going to talk about today is a little bit about how to successfully run a practice, and you have been on both sides of it. You've been on the private side of it, and you've been obviously now being on more of the academic side, and congratulations again about your fellowship. For some of the listeners out there, walk me through what a week looked like to you back in private practice, and then kind of how, if at all, that has changed in your current environment. You know, private practice, unfortunately, has been really hit hard by the healthcare revolution that's going on, the healthcare assault on on medicine where we've been forced, many doctors have been forced into integrated systems. But private practice in the when I first was entered ASCARS in nineteen eighty nine or nineteen ninety, probably ninety percent of the members were in private practice. And private practice is, is a very, very rewarding but a very, very time consuming lifestyle. You know, you're if you're if you're running a practice plus being a practicing clinician, um, you have you're the you have to work just about all of the time. So your days would be split between office work, meaning clinics, and usually some either anal rectal procedures or colonoscopies, and then usually we had one particular long OR day. And that OR day, you know, was usually started about 7 o'clock in the morning. And depending on how many cases you did, it could end 7 or 8 o'clock at night. You would be responsible. When we had so many doctors, we had seven, ho- seven offices that you, had, you were responsible for consults and covering two or three hospitals each, sometimes with a little bit of an overlap. So you had rounds first thing in the morning, and then if they were ill patients, and that would be at three hospitals. And then you would have probably go back in the evening to see if, if there were patients who were having problems in the ICU. You had to manage the, make sure that the practice was running properly in the sense that there was enough supplies, there was enough office people. We had coders. We had, um, uh, we had, uh, we had a mix of techs, and medical assistants. We did not. We had one RN in the practice who ran all of the eleven, you know, twelve medical assistants who worked with all the doctors in all the different offices. So you're also kind of director of HR. Besides that, you did have a practice manager uh, who kind of took care of the business aspect, making sure the bills are paid, making sure the deposits are made making sure the collections are up and making sure that people are, are putting in the doctors are doing what they're supposed to be doing by one, being on time, two, making sure that they're giving, after they've done a case or a procedure, make sure that they're getting their coat, their, their procedures into the billers. So it, it, and then, of course, there's the relationship that you have with certain hospitals. Um, in order to build a practice, you have to be involved in a hospital. And that means getting on some committees. That means being available. That means being in the doctor's lounge um, in the early parts to be, get, to, get to be known. The, great, the good committees are really credentials committee. Uh, that's a good one to be on because you, you learn the process. 
There are hospital uh, um, safety committees, which is another good committee. That's how you meet the, the administration and also meet the nursing staff. There's critical care committees, which is also good to be on. And there's um, outreach committees, professional outreach committees, which is always good to be on. So you're pretty busy all day long. Um, you do get a couple of weekends a month off. In the beginning, we didn't. But later on, you know, it was act- actually turned out to be an every seventh weekend. But we covered our own patients during the week. And if you had three hospitals, you would have to be responsible for answering all the nursing uh, pages and things that would go on during the night. Wow. That was quite a bit, wasn't it? <laughs> well, that that leads in perfectly. <laughs> it does. It sounds, it's a lot. Well, that leads in perfectly. Um, we kind of want to dissect some of these different things for um, advice for junior, uh, new junior surgeons out there. So that re- leads into our dissection of the day. And we should mention that today's uh, dissection of the day is is sponsored by OR Billing. Okay, surgeons, uh, if your surgeries are more varied than cholecystectomies and appendectomies all day, you should think about how your billing staff is getting your procedure information. If your staff is reading your op notes, their unfamiliarity with surgery is probably costing you money. If you're emailing codes to your billing staff, the process is probably slow and frustrating. OR Billing was created by an orthopedic uh, physician's assistant who was appalled when she saw her surgeon filling out forms by hand every week. OR Billing users log on to the website, enter patient information and procedure codes, and email it to their billing staff. OR Billing's CPT and ICD-9 search system is simple and elegant. Their Save Shortcuts feature allow users to execute groups of procedures and diagnoses with a single click. If you sign up now, the first 100 Behind the Knife listeners will get six free months with OR Billing. Go to www.orbilling.com and use the code KNIFE2018 with all lowercase letters. In addition to that, all listeners can get a free three-month trial. Again, go to orbilling.com. Okay, so Dr. Rangio, for the dissection of the day, we're talking about um, how to successfully run a practice. So you kind of went into it a little bit there, but unpack some of it for us. What are some of your tips for those fresh out of training um, that are searching for their first practice to join? How should they start? What kind of things should they be looking for? They should be looking at a group practice, a a subspecialty practice. That's one thing you look at. You also have to look at the number of the individuals in the practice. And what you'd like to look at is you're going to see a senior individual, maybe one or two senior individuals, maybe someone in the middle, maybe someone three years out and maybe yourself moving into that type of environment. So if there was a progression of movement within the practice, and you have to look at what the practice's reputation is, and that's easy to find out. How many hospitals do they cover? What is the call responsibility? What is the case mix? And how do they help you to become more successful? And that's a very difficult thing for some senior doctors to do because they have to introduce you to the community. They have to bring you to their referrals. And yet you still have to, as an individual, try to build up new referrals. And the reason I say it's difficult for some senior members is because it's difficult to let go. But most senior members do know how to do that. And One of the things you have to try and find out is have there been other doctors in the practice that left? And if it's possible, you could reach out to those individuals on why did you leave the practice? And it's something that's very important. You should look at diversity of the practice. 
um, because that's that's very very important in all the communities that you that you're going to be practicing in. Um, they kind of take you to the hospitals, meet some staff, meet some nurses, meet the staff in the office, and then when the, if you you know when you come back for another meeting, you're going to talk more about what is you're going to, what is the expected of you, and what you expect from them as an employer. And as an employer, an employee, how long am I an employee? And when and if do I become part of the practice, meaning a partner? Mm-hmm. So what is the percent? What is the what is the what is the process for that? How long does it take? And what are the requirements? And what do they expect of you when you come into the, in a sense, in a financial aspect? What do they want you to? What does it cost you to come into a practice? And you have to look at that because there is really the only value that a practice has is in hard assets, meaning computers, things like that, office equipment, and that has a value. There's a depreciated value on it, but it certainly has a value. If they start talking about goodwill or accounts receivables um, that you have to, those are things, mean you have to buy money. That is not something that a young person should look at. And that doesn't go on as much as it used to, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But there should be some nominal fee that you come in to. And what does that mean? Um, And what do you get? What happens to your salary? Is it, does it become, is it a base salary? And then is there, are there bonuses? Is that the same as what the other partners have? Or is it just everybody splits whatever hap- whatever after ex- after expenses, which is not a very good way to do it, honestly. But certainly, you could work it where you'll have a higher base, and then they may expect you to hit certain thresholds as you keep moving up. And also starting to see the senior partners starting to, over a period of time, phase out. And what is your responsibility in that? Will you be put over some type of management of some of the offices, will you be moving up in that requirement, um, things like that. They have to look at what you're going to do and how long does it take. Usually it's about three to five year process to become a full partner. Now, if they have a surgery center, that may be a pretty big nut to try and get into. And some of the senior people usually may not want someone involved in that as they're moving up. But it should be something that you should discuss because as the senior partners leave, you should have a, a, a right to buy into that particular aspect of it. And again, that, that all of this, number one, these young folks should look at having an attorney review the contracts prior to them signing anything like that. Is that kind of yeah. what you were thinking Yeah. About? That makes that makes a lot of sense, and that's a good breakdown of everything. I guess the the next step is that maybe if you like this job, and how will you go about you know, negotiating that first contract? Do you recommend having somebody look at it first, or do you do see people doing these? And what are the common pitfalls with negotiating your first contract? Well, what happens is they will send you a contract, and it, you, and it should not it should not be a, a one year contract. You should look at it, and today it's minimum of two to three. Um, it used to be five. We used to do five for people without 
for both the practice and also for the individual, the employee. But you always, what they have to realize that the employee contract benefits the employer always. And what happens is once you make some type of agreement, they will come up with a number and send it to you. And that included in the contract will be time off, meaning vacation, and also sick leave, also CME, going to conferences, and they will give you a certain amount of money, usually about anywhere from $2,500 to $3,000 per year to go to conferences, for example, going to Asgard's every year to keep up your CMEs. So you look at that. Uh, you also have to look at um, non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can be non-solicitation, which means if you leave the practice, you cannot solicit patients. That's pretty much pretty standard. A non-compete says that if you're going to stay in the community, you have there's a certain radius and a certain time frame that you cannot practice at certain hospitals that you are part of. And, you have, and, and really, the states do not frown upon those if they are short duration and reasonable in, in radius. So let's say you're in a practice and they say you can't practice within two miles or five miles of the particular office that you were busiest at. And if you're in a bigger city, that's pretty reasonable. Um, and they will say that'll be for two years. It can't be indefinite. It has to be one or two years. Now, I looked at a contract on a resident of ours last year who went to a small town in South, uh, in South Georgia. And there were two networks. One was the hospital that she was practicing at, and the other one was actually 50 miles away, and it was another network. And in her non-compete, they put, her non-compete was 51 miles from the office that they were at. And the state can uphold it because it's reasonable because she could not practice in the other network, the competing network. But that was 51 miles away. But it, was, it could be upheld. Oh. So she would have to actually leave that area and go 50 miles somewhere, 60 miles someplace else. So you have to look at those kind of things when they're, when they're looking at those. And never just sign it, because then you have to have an attorney from that state, even that area, go over those type of plans. And then when it's come time after three years, that's when they will say, well, you can become a partner. And then your attorney has to look at, well, what does that mean? What do I get and how much does it cost me? And there's a, lee a little bit of leeway in negotiating certain starting salaries, um, also looking into the pension plans, uh, looking into benefits, meaning insurance for yourself and your family, disability plans, is there a deferred compensation plan, is it a 401k, and what is vesting? Normally vesting is 0, 20, 40, 60, 80, 100. It could be six years before you're fully vested. And does the practice contribute to it, or is it all money that comes out of your pocket? And it's all pre-tax dollars, which is the most important thing. So, Dr. Rangio, I've, so I've talked to a lot of uh, either senior residents or junior staff who are just who just started in this process. And, and something I've heard time and time again is that 
a, well, a, they're completely overwhelmed by this process, and two, that they feel that residency like did not prepare them for this aspect of looking for a job. Um, can you share with us maybe some common pitfalls that people like commonly fall into when they're negotiating their first contract or looking for the first job? And two, what resources are out there for young staff when they're trying to navigate this very complex world? Well, the, the pitfalls that these young people get into is really they'll sign a contract that has an incredible base salary. And what happens is when they get onto a production basis, they can't keep up with that base salary because they're being supplemented so much by the practice. And they have to think about that. And all of a sudden, let's say they're, you know, the, you know, colorectal surgeons start at about 325, maybe 350, some maybe more than that. And, and um, what happens is, and this is, you know, starting right out of, out of um, residency or fellowship. And what happens is at the end of the two years, they're not making enough RVUs to cover that amount of money that they were making. So that's one of the pitfalls that they could, they get into and their salary may drop. And sometimes when they go to rural areas, like one of our residents did for a while, um, he had an incredible salary. He worked for a practice that was eventually absorbed by the hospital. And then he became a hospital employee and the same thing happened. And he, he really left that practice and tried to start a new practice, which didn't work out. It actually came back to one of the hospitals in, under a different system, is more of an integrated system. So they have to watch out for the starting salary and what happens at the end of the two or three years. How do you decide on, you know, looking at it? Like I, I have, I know 12,000 RVUs is a ton and you're killing yourself. Like how do you decide what kind of RVUs is reasonable uh, versus unreasonable? Well, it depends on what the conversion factor for the RVU is. Now, if they've got you on a production basis or a base salary, and they're working on a WRVU, which is the work RVU, the time that the doctor operates, the time that the doctor spends with the patient, of course, there's a total RVU, which includes preoperative and practice, it includes practice expense and um, medical malpractice. So if you're working on a kind of an RVU basis, the lowest conversion factor is Medicare, which is right now, the 2018, it's like 35.788 per RVU. Now, a colorectal surgeon going into practice, you're looking at between anywhere between up to about $47 per RVU. Now, if you're getting a salary of about $350,000, you're looking at almost 7,000 RVUs per year. Uh, that's work RVUs. And that is a lot of work to, to do in, in a particular year. When you're looking at, you know, a, a left colectomy, that's 22.5 WRVUs. That's a total of 39, but it's 22.5 RVUs, WRVUs. So picture how many colectomies 
plus anorectals, which are anywhere up to six to 11 RVUs, work RVUs, how much work you have to do to get up to $350,000 is not being supplemented. So it really depends on what they start you at and what you negotiate. Now, normally they'll look at the MGMA or the MGMC, look at those WRVU conversion factors. But you have to be aware of those things when, you, when you're signing on. But sometimes they'll just give you a flat salary. And if you hit a certain number of collections, they'll give you a bonus of a percentage of, of what you did over that. And that sometimes is probably easier to, to work with. It may not be as high as the 350000 um, but it should, it should be, you know, between two hundred seventy-five to 3000 to $25,000. The doctor was starting out. So, Guy, one of the issues that comes up then regarding salary is making sure that you get appropriate um, documentation and credit for the things that you do. And as a part of that, one of the things that I don't think is taught well either is coding and billing. First, can you tell us a little bit about, you are the RUC representative. Uh, what, tell, tell them a little bit about what is the RUC and, you know, why is that important? And then are there any trip? Uh, tips that you can give regarding coding or billing for the junior surgeon or those fresh out? Well, the, the um, American Medical Specialties Society Relative Update Committee is affectionately known as the RUC. And it actually started in 1992 when CMS instituted the physician fee schedule. And at that time, you know, there were about 200 codes. Now they're a little over 9,000. And, and the RUC meets three times a year. I've been representing ASCAR since 2002 on the RUC, and I still am um, an advisor to it. And I've sat on the panel uh, twice in the past, uh, I guess, six years. So when the RUC is, re- it represents every subspecialty in the United States including uh, DOs and chiropractors. And we each, have a, we each have consultants, and we meet three times a year, and at that, codes, work values are either brought up on new codes or modified or brought through uh, as, as statute by CMS where they think that a code is misvalued or a cl- code has had a rapid increase in utilization. So if a society brings a code through, and recently our in- hemorrhoid injection code was fe- felt to be mis- misvalued because it had a ten- it's a 10-day global, meaning it had a follow-up visit within 10 days. So we brought that code through, and luckily we were able to keep its value. It's not valued much, but the point was that it's an older code, and if you look at it, not many people inject hemorrhoids because of the IRC and, of course, the banding technique. But it did come through, and one of the things that one of the people, that, and I presented it, and one of the things that the RUC, one of the RUC members brought up was, hey, this we haven't looked at your all of your anorectal codes in the past 10 years. 
And I kind of argued about that and said, look, you, we're not going to bring back all the codes because nothing's changed in hemorrhoid surgery. And that kind of, that was a very important thing because if you bring a whole family of codes through, typically it's going to drop down in value anywhere from anywhere from 8 to 15%. So that's the value that it has. We just set the number of work that a doctor, amount of time that a doctor spends. That's where the 22.5 WRVU comes at. That can get sent to CMS, and CMS upholds 90% of the values, but they put a dollar value to it. So how do you learn how to, what that means? You know, all you have to learn about is how to code. And there are a number of ACS every year puts about four coding courses out. And you can go to those, and it's really very well run. It's actually free. And they talk about if you do a colectomy, and then you do a small bowel resection, how would you code for that? And it'll talk a little bit about modifiers. Like, let's say you're in the office and you see a patient. And then you do an anoscopic. And you do a banding. What you do is the E&M is work that you just did. You put a 25 modifier on it, saying it was separate than doing an anoscopy and also separate from doing a procedure. And, but you can only charge, if let's say you see a patient for, hem, for a bleeding. You talk to the patient, you do an, you examine them, and you tell, and then the patient will, of course, um, keep the gown on, but will sit down and you will talk to the patient. And say, well, you, we can do this by banding. And if the patient wants to be banded that day, you can explain to them the risks and benefits. They put, get back into position and you band the hemorrhoid. You cannot charge for the diagnostic anoscopic because in the banding there is already an anoscopic included because you can't do it unless you're looking at the hemorrhoids. So those things are very easy to learn. And there are, there are courses out there that you can take to understand how to do all that. But there, and we're trying desperately at LSU to have the medical school actually have senior medical students um, actually meet with people, docs who know how to code to introduce them to that type of concept. It's a lot easier with the, with the um, EHRs because that's all in, that, in the system. We, we, have, we have to have Epic here. So it really is easier. All we have to do is introduce the residents on what level an E&M should be for the amount of time they're doing it. And that really helps the medical students, the residents. And then, of course, if you do a procedure, it's in there. All you have to do is know how to get to it in Epic, put down collectively, and it'll show which one you did. So it makes it a lot easier, but it's nice to understand it. This can be a pretty heavy administrative burden. It can feel like a heavy administrative burden. I know I've noticed that as I'm kind of just starting my, my practice as a, as a staff physician, how much time this mm -hmm. takes, how much time this takes, and how onerous it can be. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one thing I struggle with is that I know I don't feel like I get a lot of feedback as to whether or not I'm doing it correctly. Like, in, it, I feel like I should be able, at the end of the day, pull up some kind of report that tells me how I'm doing as far as coding um, and if I'm coding things correctly. That doesn't seem to exist. So how do you get that feedback to know that you're, you're doing things correctly? And two... Do you have any tips for those out there as how to reduce or ease the administrative workload that uh, that this creates? Now, you're talking about in, in private practice or across the board? Across the board. 
you know, in private practice, usually the practice will at least monthly, if not quarterly, show the doctors what they've been doing over that time frame. In, in an integrated network, again, they should be giving you a type of a dashboard. At LSU, we have a dashboard, and what it does is it shows our everything. I mean, it, it's actually, it's really remarkable. Although, we, we are on an RVU system, but they don't enforce it, so we basically have a flat salary. Mm-hmm. And since we, we are state teachers, we still get a dashboard, because we do have this health network system, and it looks at, it, it, it's really, it gives you the number of patients you've seen that month, the consult that you've seen, the office procedures that you've done, the, the hospital office, uh, procedures that you've done, and it gives you the amount billed and the amount collected. It breaks it down into the, you know, the, the third-party payers, the Medicare, the Medicaid, the free care. So you have all of the insurance companies, the number of patients that you've seen under that particular company, what you did, what the result was, and what the reimbursement was. And that comes out quarterly. And then it's like in, in our section, there are three of us now, and I'm, I can see what the associates are doing and what I'm doing. And we compare it as a, as a department, as a section, and individually. So that's something that's out there that most of the institutions and certainly the, the big integrated systems should have and should be doing because you can't work in a void. You have to know what, what, what you're doing on a daily basis and on a monthly basis. The burden that we have, honestly, is the EMRs. That's the burden that we have. Physicians spend so much time on the computer Mm-hmm. And, and there is no reimbursement for that. You can kind of modify it in the sense that you can do, use a lot of smart phrases and stuff. Certainly since the, e- the EMRs came out, there's a lot of upcoding on E&Ms. In fact, if you look at the Medicare data bank, the number one code that was utilized many years ago was 99, the number one E&M code was 99213. Now it's 99214 because of the ability to upcone because you have all those different methods of review systems, et cetera, you know, in it. Yeah. But that's the biggest burden we have. Now there are supposedly scribes that can do things for you, but again, it comes down to you putting some time in on the computer, you know, to verify now my setting, what the residents are are putting in and modifying that, you know, make sure that to put in the proper things in the thing so that in, in the office note, um, so that the billing corresponds to the, the, um, the code. So that's the biggest burden that we have. The part in private practice that's a big problem is keeping up, particularly with the MIPS measures. Medicare started rolling this stuff out with the paper performance, EHR kind of things. And when 
all of that went away and was put under the MIPS um, under MACRA 2015. And you looked at the MIPS stuff, which is most of us are in that, that got us into four buckets of quality and stuff. But all that was originally came from Medicare. When you look at what doctor in practice is, there was a very interesting study done, cardiology, orthopedists, primary care network, and a integrated network with a primary care component. And when they looked at this, this was done by MGMA, and they looked at these practices, and when they looked at all four of these practices, it cost, it was cost doctors and their personnel 756 hours per month from per year to keep up with the quality measures that some of them just aren't quality. That turns out to be on those four practices on average forty thousand dollars per year per doctor hmm. to keep up hmm. with quality measures. That came out to be fifteen billion dollars for those four <laughs> specialties. Wow. In cost. Impressive. You you can't make that up. There's no way a doctor could make up that kind of a loss. So that's the problem that they're having in private practice. Um, we have a network that is that, of course, is part of the MIPS thing, and all they're trying to do at MIPS is to push us into advanced APMs, alternative payment models. So, you know, I think that I think that's answered some of the questions, but I, again, I don't know how we can get rid of the burden of the measures and get rid of the burdens of the of the of the EMRs. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah. I think if you can, if think if anybody can figure that out, they'll 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 make up that those billions of dollars in loss <laughs> with, with sales there. Yeah, they probably probably will. Yeah, it's they it's will. it's uh, it's really it's really daunting and <laughs> kind of <laughs> overwhelming, especially for those of us that are, yeah. are just kind of entering the practice. Well, that, that closes up our dissection today. Uh, the last part we wanted to go over is our final five. Uh, this is part of the podcast that uh, we ask you a few questions to let our listeners get to know you a little more personally. Uh, starting off, our first question is, what's on your iPod or what kind of music do you listen to the listen to in the operating room? Well, you know, I go the whole spectrum. You know, I, I'm a child of the 60s, but I go back to the music of the 40s, 50s. I still love Muddy Water, John Coltrane. Um, I'm an absolute, still a Beatle freak. Um, but I love to listen to smooth jazz, so I have my. I'm 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 an Apple addict, <laughs> so I have my iTunes, and I love their radios. So um, I love to listen to smooth jazz. I really love to listen to old Blue Eyes stuff. That's Frank Sinatra. In case you didn't know who that was, <laughs> but you probably don't. Um, so that's what I like to listen to. I, I don't. You know, I just listened to yesterday a brand new album that came out from that was done by Jimi Hendrix. So it was kind of a headbanging thing, but just listening to his artist his artist work with the guitar, it's just a shame we lost him so young. So those are the things that I like to, you know, things like that. Jimi Hendrix, buried in Seattle. Number two, what hobbies, yes. talents, or interests do you have outside of the operating room? Well, the past year I've been pretty busy, <laughs> so I haven't really done a lot of the things that I like to do one is I, I always like to I like to exercise I do still ride a Harley um, that's kind of my main thing I do do a lot of I'm getting back into spinning um, because it's really not safe as it used to be for me to ride on a bicycle 
particularly in New Orleans, I'm not sure if they're aiming at you or just a coincidence <laughs> that they bump you. Um, so I like to spin. Um, so I like to do that. And, and um, I've got a wonderful wife, and we like to spend a lot of time together. So we'll walk, talk. And I, I'm a, fer- a ferocious reader. Right now I'm re- reading a book on, on Leonardo da Vinci. Um, some of his, He's just an incredible genius, and I just respect people like that. So I try to keep it balanced, and I love uh, being with my children. Of course, my kids are older. i got a 34-year-old son and a 30-year-old daughter. One lives in California, the other lives in Naples, so I try to get to see them two or three times a year. All right, number three. Well, that, that, uh, you may have just answered that, but do you have any uh, favorite trips or vacations that you can share with us? Well, you know, last year I had the, you know, representing ASCOs, I had the privilege of, of going to Berlin, presenting at the ESCP, you know, European Society of Color Proctologists, and then I had a wonderful trip to Shanghai uh, with uh, Professor Fu on the uh, Chinese Society of Anorectal Surgeons. Um, and it was just such a, a, an entirely different um, feel to it because they had the president of the society of the Soviet Society of Colorectal Surgeons. They had three representatives of the Oncology Society uh, in Japan. They're the president of their colorectal society and the president of one of their anorectal societies in a smaller area in Japan. So, and we were sitting at a, sitting at a table together with interpreters and the, the Japanese, the Japanese uh, societies all spoke English and so did Professor Fu, and the, but there was an interpreter there. He was a young man who translated from uh, Russian to Chinese, Chinese to English, English, Japanese to Chinese, and to English. So he was kind of the focal point of us discussing about our societies and how we approach things. So that was an incredibly rewarding experience um, to do that. Um, the Berlin trip, the European uh, Society of Coloproctologists is an up-and-coming society. They are really, really on the rise. They've got a, got a lot of young surgeons for, throughout Europe, and they are very impressive. What I think ASCARS has to do in the future is we have to start looking to the Asian societies and the Soviet societies and our Hispanic people in, in, in Japan, in um, Mexico, and in South America. We have, I know we have the tripartite, but I think we have to broaden our reach to these incredibly strong societies that are in the Asian area. I think that's something that we have to keep pushing forward um, because they are very, very sharp, very, very smart, and very, very talented. Number four, what would you be doing if you were not in medicine today? Um, I'm, kind of, I'm not at that point. Um, I'm a few years from that. But <laughs> I guess what I would be doing is trying to do some consulting work um, because of my background in coding, practice management. And I'm also, I've played the guitar my whole life, but unfortunately the fingers don't work as well. But I am going to start to pick up playing the piano. All right. Great. That's one of the other things. Yeah. <laughs> well, our fifth and final question, if you could go back in time and see yourself on the first day of internship, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I was pretty 
I was pretty aggressive then. It's pretty brazen. And um, I probably would have kept my mouth shut more. <laughs> <laughs> and li- listen a lot more and keep my <laughs> mouth shut. <laughs> well, those are, those are I think, uh, very succinct words that we can absolutely continue to live by at all times. Uh, Guy, thanks so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. Thank we really you. appreciate the opportunity to kind of tell us a little bit about your background, but more importantly about some of the kind of the lessons that you've learned and, and how that we can integrate into having a successful practice, especially early in our career. So from all of our listeners, again, we really appreciate it. And I want to thank you for what you do with, with the society, uh, Scott, really. You've done a tremendous job, and with this podcast up, this is just a wonderful outreach, and, and Ask Us thanks you so much. Until next time, dominate the day. 